0: Okay, so for this morning we're continuing our series of studies that we're doing on biblical womanhood. the Just the, the idea of what, it, what it's all about being a woman but from God's perspective rather than the world's perspective. And the main focal points of our studies, a couple of which we've done so far and several that are still ahead of us, is we're looking at a woman defined biblically, a woman designed by God, and then what's ahead of us is a woman fallen, uh, the impact of what happened in the Garden of Eden on what it means to be a woman in this world, and then a woman redeemed by the saving work of the Lord, and then ultimately and finally uh, when the Lord returns, a woman glorified, and what that will be like. So uh, our first study, we looked at the, a definition, tried to arrive at a, a simple working definition of womanhood from Scripture, understanding, and my main point in that was simply that, that uh, as we were just discussing, uh, the world wants to try to squeeze you as a woman into its mold, and um, it's in God's word that we find the true definition of what it means to be a woman. And the reason for that, of course, is that God, God created you, and he created you with a specific design in his heart and in his mind. And so really, he's the only one who's qualified to actually define you. And any other definition of what it means to be a woman is going to be a twisted or misshapen um, definition of true womanhood, and then, in our study last month, what we did, or actually the last study i I, I think it was a couple of months ago, is uh, we looked at god 's design. what is that intent that was in his heart? Uh, you can think of it in terms of like a, a blueprint for a building project with in this case the woman being the project and what the Lord intended to to build, but he did so with a very specific format, a very specific plan, a very specific blueprint in his mind. And um, we looked at the first part of God's design for womanhood, and we did that exclusively in Genesis chapter 1. We were following what I described as the principle of first mention in Scripture, which is a, a principle really important in your own study of God's Word, way beyond the study of womanhood. This applies to every important topic in God's Word, and that is that whenever God first mentions a theme, a subject, a topic, um, you're not going to find everything that he's eventually going to reveal about that topic in the very first mention, but you're going to find essential information in the first mention of that topic, things that are meant to be uppermost in our minds and hearts, in terms of building an understanding of what God is wanting to communicate to us, and so what we saw in Genesis chapter one, in the very first description on day six of creation, the day that God chose to make humanity, um, He He defined for us and described for us in terms of His design, His original purpose both for Adam and for Eve. And um, the original purpose as chapter one describes it for us is that woman alongside of man was was designed to be God's image bearer. That means no matter what else you ever think about yourself as a woman, the very first thing God wants you to know and to understand is you're designed by him to bear his image, which means to be like him. So the whole point really Of the Christian life, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, the whole point of the Christian life is to become more like Him. And we, of course, don't do that by our own strength, by our own goodness. We do that by the grace of God. We do that by the powerful influences of the Holy Spirit working in us. And we'll be focused more on that when we eventually get to the uh, portion of our study where we're talking about woman redeemed and how God is working in you today in order to shape you and mold you and fashion you more like his son, more like Christ. But that's essentially the the, the very first thing that you need to understand about being a woman, and that is you're meant to be like God. And then second, what we saw was you're also called not just to be his image bearer, but Genesis 1 describes that you're, and I, this is a term that I didn't really use last study, but it, it, it kind of captures the essence of the second part of our study last time, you're called to be God's agent in this world. And by that, you are, you are serving God's purposes in the earth, And the key word that he chooses to use in chapter one to describe serving his purposes is you are a a dominion taker in this world. So God has created a a world for you to live in. He's created an environment for you to function in. And your primary responsibility in that world and in that environment is to take dominion over it. To, in a sense, rule over that little portion of the world that God has made you responsible for, and to rule over it, representing him, just like God himself rules over all that he has made. So we are, in a sense, like many rulers uh, under his greater rule, but representing him in that way. Now, for our study today, we're going to continue on the the focus of God's design for womanhood. But we're going to look, not in Genesis chapter 1, but as the creation story continues in Genesis chapter 2, we'll look at a key passage in chapter 2. And um, most of you are familiar with this, but uh, Genesis 1 and 2, it's an interesting study, (coughs) a study that is obviously meant to be together, but are meant to be compared side by side. Genesis 1 is the story of the entire first week of creation from a high level heavenly viewpoint. Genesis chapter 2 is retelling not the entire week of creation but day 6 in that week of creation. Day 6 is of course the day that he makes humanity and it it narrows the focus and adds details to the creation of both the man and the creation of the woman there on that most important sixth day. I say, most important, because uh, of course, from the seventh day, God rested, but in the in the six days of creation, while God created amazing things on each day of the week, and you could maybe make a case and say day one was most important, but really, from a biblical perspective, day six is meant to be seen as the most important day of the original week because God saved the best for last in his creation of humanity, and we bear his image unlike other aspects of his creation that preceded uh, the creation of man and woman on day six. So we're continuing forward our concept of first mention of Scripture, but we're kind of broadening it out to second mention. So while the first mention gives us essential information, The second mention in Scripture often adds more details to that first mention, and we're going to see that in the portion that's ahead of us today. So let's just read uh, this small portion of chapter 2. Really, for your own sake, if if you wanted to deepen your own understanding of these principles, I'd recommend reading all of Genesis chapter 2 and consider the things that we've been focused on. But I'm just going to focus on these key verses starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord, had, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, Which, as I said, is just retelling day six, but now, with more detail, kind of the camera is moving in in a in a close up of the circumstances, and we have new details that are introduced uh, in verse in verses uh, six through fifteen, we have the account of how the man himself was made by the Lord, but where we started reading in verse eighteen, we see the the initial or original creation of the first woman who uh, we'll later learn is going to be named Eve. And In this mention, what we're going to see is some new information that's added to the account. and It is as essential as the first information in chapter 1, but I'm going to say it this way, it's secondary to the information in chapter 1. So, what we're, going to, what we're going to find is, in these two chapters, there are four key principles about God's design for women. This is the biblical design for womanhood. The first two principles we've already focused on, which are, again, God made you to bear his image, and God made you to be his agent in order to take dominion in your portion of the world that he's placed you. There are two new principles introduced in this section that are Just as important, but they are, they're functioning in a secondary role to the first principles in chapter one. In other words, there's a reason why God mentioned what he did in chapter one and saved what he's now revealing here in chapter two. The reason for that is following a pattern that God continues to use in his revelation throughout redemptive history that's going to follow. In Genesis one, The pair of principles that are describing God's design for you as a woman are primarily related to your personal relationship to God. So the idea of being an image bearer is all about you and your own saved and redeemed and sanctified relationship with God. The idea of being a dominion taker is God's assignment for you what he's spoken to your your heart and your life about what he wants you to accomplish in this world during the course of your life in this world. In chapter 2, the the focus shifts to a second relationship. And the, the second relationship is super important, but it's secondary to the first relationship. I'll say it this way. There's, of course, no more important relationship in your life as a woman than your relationship with the Lord your relationship with God. But following that, there is a super important and an essential relationship that a God establishes in your life that has something to reveal to your heart about God's design for you, and that's your relationship to your husband. And so here, God focuses all of the attention on that. Eve's relationship to Adam, and of course that's meant to function as a template for our understanding about our relationships today, as God brings us into a similar kind of covenant relationship to our mate, now, therefore, the pattern that 's that 's being displayed here is the same pattern you 've heard me teach this before when we went through the Ten Commandments together, and uh, i 've I've actually referenced this concept several times as part of other teachings. In the Ten Commandments, God has chosen to reveal his ways to his people in two segments rather than just one segment. So we have two tablets of the law as opposed to a single tablet of the law with ten principles on that single tablet. What we have is two tablets, each one containing five principles, five essential principles of what God has revealed to us about his purposes for our lives in this world. The first tablet, if you remember from those studies, is all about principles of training our hearts what it means to be in a right relationship with God, what it means to truly love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And the second tablet is all about what then? Our relationship with our neighbor. And of course, the first, as we see unfolding in the story here, who are the first neighbors in human history? Adam and Eve. They have, at this moment in history, there's only one neighbor in the world, the other one. And so this is human-to-human principles, whereas the first tablet is all about human-to-God, God-to-human principles. So Genesis chapter 2 is that story, that story of of God's purposes for you in your relationship with your husband, and God is going to reveal in this section to our hearts um, essential principles about his design in that secondary relationship. This is why I'm saying chapter 2 is secondary to chapter 1, chapter 1 being a higher concern, a first tablet concern. But that doesn't mean, and you understand this, like if we're Considering the Ten Commandments, we don't work our way through the first five and we've completed the first tablet of the law, and then we say, Well, I don't need the second tablet. I've got the first tablet. As long as I'm right with God, that's all that matters. And of course, if if that's where you stop and that's your conclusion, you've missed half of the point of what God is communicating to your life. Yes, the first tablet is first in priority and, and importance, but the second tablet is just as essential as the first. All right, so what are the principles that we need to draw out of this second uh, chapter and this second portion that's talking about the creation of the woman and what's revealed about God's design for her And that? There's two key words, and these two key words capture these two principles. So the two key words, one of which isn't in the text, but it's clearly implied in the text, and I'll show how that is. The second actually is in the text. And so these two words are, God's design for you as a woman includes that you are called to be a companion to your husband, and you are called to be a helper to your husband. A companion and a helper. Now, there's, as you might imagine, there's overlap between those two principles. They're they're linked. They're connected. They're uh, one feeds the other. Uh, but they are separate and distinct principles, and uh, we're going to focus on that, them in that way. So the first principle, you're called to be a companion. When I say call, you understand the word calling simply defines or describes for us more clearly the concept of design. So God has designed you to be a companion, and he's designed you to be a helper. All right, so Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 is where we started reading. Let me reread verse 18 because it's in verse 18 that we find this companion concept highlighted, even though the word companion isn't found there in the verse. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so actually we have both of our key concepts Uh, introduced in verse 18. And then the other verses that I read, uh, continuing on through the end of chapter 2, are just filling out the details of what it is that the Lord is introducing with these concepts of companion and helper. Uh, This phrase, and this is a quote, obviously you and I weren't on the scene. Um, Moses, who wasn't on the scene physically and personally either, Moses is later writing this account. But we can be super confident that Moses has a, a true account here because all of this was revealed to Moses, remember, in the Exodus when the Lord called the children of Israel and led them, delivered them out of their, their bondage to Pharaoh and the Egyptians and led them across the Red Sea and then led them into the, the wilderness and led them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And when the nation of Israel, the fledgling nation of Israel, camped around the perimeter of Mount Sinai... The Lord called to Moses and said, Come up to the summit of the mountain. And and of course, the Lord was waiting there on Mount Sinai for him. And the evidence of the Lord waiting there was the the same pillar of, of fire and cloud that had led them so far in the wilderness journey had settled on the summit of Mount Sinai. And Moses entered that cloud out of the sight of the children of Israel, and he remained there unseen to them for forty days and forty nights in the immediate presence of the Lord. The Lord had a lot to reveal to him. He revealed to him the, the whole blueprint for the construction of the tabernacle, which was going to be God's meeting place between himself and his people. But he also revealed to him the law, and this account in Genesis is part of that law. So we have Moses' account of what's going on in the garden on this sixth day, and we have a quote direct quote of what the Lord said. It's interesting. At this point, all that's on the scene is Adam and the Lord. And yet this line that the Lord says in verse 18 apparently isn't spoken directly to Adam. It's not like he's starting a conversation with Adam. The way that the Lord speaks here indicates the Lord is really speaking more to himself. How many of you ever... uh, engaged in some project at home. And while you're doing the project, as you're working out the details and implications of, and the applications of what you're trying to accomplish, you find yourself talking to yourself about your project. Have you ever done that? Sure. You know, I do that all the time. You know, even as I'm preparing Bible studies, I'll be talking to myself and talking to the Lord, trying to figure out, you know, how I'm supposed to construct the outlines Uh, to communicate the information that I believe the Lord wants me to communicate. So the Lord here is, I think, speaking to himself, and he's speaking to himself about this great project that he has in mind and heart, but he says it in such a way that we recognize through his eyes, as we're reading it later, what he's recognizing. And what he recognizes is this. It is not good that the man should be alone. Now that is meant... Before the next line, let me just camp on that first line of what the Lord says for a moment. That's meant to strike us because we've just read Genesis chapter 1. And what we see happening in Genesis chapter 1 are two things. And these two things as a pair happen over and over again in relationship to each of the six days of creation. So on day one of creation, the Lord does something what does he do? He creates something new. And this continues all the way through Genesis chapter six. He creates something new. But at the end of his work on each day of creation, what we see the Lord doing second only to his work of creation is he kind of steps back and looks at what he's just made and evaluates it and declares something about what it is that he's just done. And in each case, what the Lord declares in his evaluation after his own work of creation is what? What does the Lord essentially declare throughout Genesis chapter 1? This is good. You know, I've, I've done a good job. I, I, this, is all, this is all unfolding exactly as I intended, exactly as I designed, exactly as I purposed, it's a very good thing. So over and over again throughout chapter one, we see the Lord evaluating his own handiwork. Now we're in chapter two and we're focused just on day six of creation and we're halfway through day six, actually about three quarters of the way through day six. Because on day six, early in the day, God created animals. And then later in the day, he created the man, who is going to then name the animals, as we see in this earlier portion. And then late in the day, the very last thing God is going to create is he's going to create the woman. And what we don't see the Lord doing in this case in verse 18 is standing back and evaluating what's happened so far the creation of the animals, then the creation of Adam. And he does not say, This is really good. Instead, what we have kind of unexpectedly, it kind of interrupts the flow of the narrative. What we see happening is the Lord God says at this point of day six, it is not good. Now, what is not good? It's not that the man, as God has made him, is not good. And it's not that the animals are not good. And it's not that the world surrounding him, like the plant life and all of that, is not good. It's not like the universe surrounding the world is not good. All of that remains good. What's not good is a condition or a circumstance in which the man is existing at this present moment. The man is existing in isolation from anyone like him other than the Lord himself. And so the man finds himself alone in the garden. And the Lord looking at that And evaluating his circumstance of being alone says it's not good that the man should be alone. What can we learn about that for God's purpose for humanity? Simply that human beings are not designed to be alone in this world. Now, there are some special circumstances that people face where it's, you know, uh, isolation is forced upon them. For instance, if someone's in prison and even within the prison, there's some measure of interaction with other human beings unless they're placed in what we call solitary confinement. And then that human being is just placed in, in a cubicle by themselves and their only, only interaction is an occasional visit from a guard. They're not allowed to interact with other uh, members of the prison community. That's a, an exceptional Circumstance, or let's say you're a sailor and you've been shipwrecked. And how many of you ever saw the Tom Hanks movie where he was shipwrecked? Uh, not shipwrecked, his plane crash, and he ended up on a on an island, beautiful environment, almost like a Garden of Eden kind of environment. But he's there all alone. And what happens to Tom Hanks in that movie? He nearly goes crazy, and 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 he takes he he finds this ball. Which, you know, he reached for with, when, when he had a wound on his hand, and there's like a bloody handprint on the ball, and he sees that as it, it has kind of the features of a human face. And so what does he do with that ball? He forms a relationship with it. Yeah he names it Wilson, because it's a Wilson manufactured ball. and he starts to talk to it, and it becomes his companion. companion. And that's a movie from the world. That's a movie where, you know, I don't think Tom Hanks knows the Lord, and I don't think the people that wrote the script necessarily know the Lord. But what they're portraying there is a biblical principle. It's a human reality, which is there are some people that that tend to be more social than others. Uh, For instance, if you compared my wife and myself, and, and we were rated on a scale of who's more social who do you think would be the more social between the two? Obviously, my wife is a more social creature than I am, but I don't function well in in total isolation. Why? Because I'm not designed to function in total isolation. And this evaluation of the Lord applies to us today just as much as it applied to Adam and Eve in the garden. It is not good for the man to be alone. So what does the Lord do? He intervenes in order to resolve the the problem that he sees in this present condition. And of course, even before the Lord spoke these words, he always intended, had always planned to create Eve. The reason he says these words is not, it just suddenly occurred to the Lord, it's not good for man to be alone. He says this for our benefit. He says this to make sure we understand the essential necessity of social interaction in our lives. The necessity of true heart-to-heart companionship in our lives. And so it's not good for a man that the man should be alone. And then the Lord declares his intention and his purpose to resolve it by saying, I will make him a helper fit for him. So, in the Lord's declaration, and here now he's talking about his intention to now make the woman, and that's why the, the, uh, the story uh, unfolds the way it does from this point. But in his intention to make the woman, he uses this keyword to describe her before she's even made. I will, I will make a helper fit for him. And I'm adding the word companion as a, uh, a parallel, because the companion issue is what is going to resolve the problem of man being alone. All right, so in order to really drive the point home, and this is, this is the way the Lord often functions, and he does so for our benefit, what happens immediately after his evaluation in the, in the unfolding of the Genesis story here? I would expect this. I see Adam. If I'm in the Lord's shoes, I see Adam. I see that it's not good for him to be alone. I want him to understand the principle. So I say it out loud. It is not good for the man to be alone. What's my next step? I'm going to put Adam in that deep sleep that that we see unfold in the story. I'm going to remove that rib from him, and I'm going to immediately start building a woman from that rib to bring her to the man to resolve the problem. Is that what the Lord does next? No. What he does next is this. Now, verse 19, the, the very next step, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names. The, r- the purpose of giving names is to initiate relationship. Naming is essential to relationship. Just like when you uh, first meet someone, you introduce one another to each other by sharing names. Um, And this extends, by the way, to animal kingdom. How many of you own a pet of any kind? Is your pet named? As opposed to just, there it is, the turtle. (laughs) (laughs) Or there it is, the dog. But you give personal names to your pets on purpose. I mean, this goes so much so there's, in our neighborhood, and I experienced this on my drive over, so this was this was on my mind um, there's a there 's a home that has a, a larger yard and it 's the the homes in in our neighborhood are zoned for horses as well. but in this yard there 's not a horse but there 's a donkey that lives there, and apparently he 's kind of like a, a a celebrity in our community he 's kind of known uh, and he 's got a name his name is barney i 've never personally met Barney, but whenever i I turn right on this particular street. He's right across the street, and he's usually right up against the fence, and he's looking for friends. And so I roll my window down as I'm turning, and I'll call out, Hey, Barney! And his ears will, like, you know, start doing this. And a couple of times he's even done that... I'm not I'm not going to do a donkey sound, but he's done the donkey sound, you know... Uh, kind of like, hey, come back. We can talk, you know, we can get to know each other. Um, so God has placed it in animals to be companions as well. Uh, we have two dogs at home that are our pets. One of them, I think, would survive without companionship. But, but the, the other one, you know, whenever we're in the house, anywhere we are in the house, that, that dog is right near us. He doesn't he doesn 't want to be out of our immediate presence, and whenever we leave the house, you can hear the whimpering you know as we close the door behind him it 's that in that the designed in desire uh, for companionship, even on the animal side. So what the Lord does here right after saying it 's not good for the man to be alone is he takes Adam through this whole process of introducing all of the animals that he has created and he allows Adam the privilege and the right why because Adam is a dominion taker and and this is this is on the job training for Adam. He allows him to name each one of the animal categories. I don't think he was giving personal names to all the animals like this this donkey is Barney and this one is, you know, something else, but he's naming the categories of animals like, you know, this is a horse, this is a this is a um, you know, this is a wolf. This, you know, each one of the categories is named. And at the end, what happens is this evaluation, verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. And then this intentionally, dramatically sad description. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, why? The Lord is wanting to reveal to the man's heart his need for a companion and this keyword fit for him, meaning a companion on the same level as him, a companion that's capable of, of giving back to him in companionship the same measure that he's pouring in to his companion. And as much as animals can be companions to us and fill a certain amount of that companionship void in our lives. That's why many of us do have pets. Nevertheless, they're not capable of filling the whole measure of the need for companionship or at the level that the Lord intends. So first principle in terms of our our second layer here. It's really the third principle of the four for God's design for women, and that is you're designed to be a companion. But in this story, the way God is telling it, because it's his design, not ours, Who is the companion? You are. The woman is. And a companion designed specifically for the man, who is, of course, going to be not just her friend, not just her neighbor, but is going to be in a special connected relationship, a covenant relationship, a relationship that we later come to identify as marriage. Now, in this companionship principle. Let me just share with you three principles from other, three portions from other places in God's word to uh, nail down how important this is and how God is working in this companionship concept. The first one is in uh, Proverbs. Actually, let's not do that one first. Let's do uh, Ecclesiastes first, and then we'll come back to Proverbs. Ecclesiastes. And these should be passages that are familiar to you. Chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is mostly filled with revealed information about what's wrong in the world. It's it's really a book about the fall and about how the fall has, has deeply affected human experience in this world and just to what depths that influence has gone. But there are some portions that also reveal... God's redemptive purposes in the midst of that fallen circumstance. And this is one of those. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I'll start reading in verse 8. Actually, I'll have to read 7 just to get the uh, full sentence. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, meaning no companion, they're isolated, they're alone, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him. Now, where do we find woe terminology usually in Scripture? We did a study in our study through the Gospel of Matthew where there's an entire chapter in Matthew, chapter 23, that's devoted to a series of seven woes that Jesus pronounces over the city of Jerusalem. What does woe usually mean? Yeah, it's a, it's a pronunciation by God of, of judgment. It's not a good circumstance. You never want to be under woe as God is pouring out either blessing or cursing, either either good things or unwanted things upon your life. And here he identifies, woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. And where in scripture are two meant to lie together? It's in the covenant relationship of marriage. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, meaning if you're in a fight one on one, you might come out the winner in that circumstance. But two will withstand him, and then this final statement, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. What's the third element that's introduced here at the very end is the relationship of the Lord to the two who are in in righteous covenant relationship. With each other and now under the Lord's blessing. So the emphasis in the Ecclesiastes passage is all about companionship, and it's all about the Lord's purpose for companionship in marriage, and it's all about the blessing that the Lord pours into our life through that companionship relationship. And that if someone is without that, in a sense, they're experiencing life more as it would be experienced under the Lord's judgment. Whether or not they're directly under the Lord's judgment, that that isolated circumstance is not an ideal circumstance for our lives. Now, the second one I mentioned was back in the book of Proverbs. Let's look at that. And we're looking here in Proverbs chapter 27. This is a famous line, one of the more famous lines from Proverbs you know how Proverbs functions, at least from chapter ten forward. Uh, it's, it's like a, it's like an entire Bible study in in a single verse, and this is uh, the case here. Proverbs twenty seven verse seventeen: Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Uh, When the Lord first begins to speak through Solomon here, iron sharpens iron, you might think he's trying to teach you about how to sharpen a knife, but he's not. He's talking about how to sharpen yourself. and The sharpening here is what we call sanctification, meaning the the necessary changes that the Lord is after following our salvation experience. That the Lord has not finished changing us when he saves us he's just started to change us and the greater changes are even following that initial salvation experience but what the the imagery the lord uses here about iron sharpening iron and then he makes sure we understand he's not really talking about iron at all he's talking about people one person sharpens another person now how does that happen well the imagery though of of iron sharpening iron is helpful because How does iron sharpen iron? You don't take iron and sharpen another piece of iron by just banging them together repeatedly. You're just banging them together. How sharp is either piece of iron going to get? Not. You could possibly eventually break the iron if you just keep pounding it against each other uh, repeatedly. But in order to sharpen it, you have to apply skill and you have to uh, apply a specific steady kind of friction Pressure, in which one piece of iron will literally shave off of you know parts of the other piece of iron, so that you end up with a, a sharp and now useful implement. Um, you want to cut your dinner food. You could take a bar of iron and try to cut it, but you're not going to succeed. You're just going to pound your dinner food into a mess. But if you have a nice sharp knife, now you. You have something that's useful, something that's actually beneficial to your life. And the idea is that we enter in, generally speaking, we enter into the covenant relationship of marriage like two bars of iron, but they need to be refined, and they need to be sharpened, they need to be shaped, and they're shaped by rubbing against each other. And we're not talking here in a physical sense, but rubbing against each other character-wise, personality-wise. And of course, when you rub two pieces of iron You know, you may get some resistance, uh, you may even get some sparks, but the goal is one is actually having a beneficial effect on the other. And this is actually working both ways in the relationship. Both pieces of iron are being sharpened in the process and being benefited in the process. So from those passages, what we see is that companionship is essential your understanding of how God has designed you as a woman, and it is specifically intended to shape your understanding of your relationship to your husband. Now, let me just give you some things to chew on and think about in terms of this companionship concept. I'm not going to develop these so much in a a biblical sense, just give you some, some things to consider all right, so I'm designed to be a companion for my husband. How do I practically go about growing in that design, that calling, that purpose of the Lord? First and foremost, to be a true companion to your husband means you need to learn how to be a friend to your husband. So friendship is an essential element of companionship. Um, it, the goal, this is the ideal goal, doesn't mean that everyone will reach this. It doesn't mean that everyone will find this. But the goal is for you to be your husband's best friend in life. Now he will probably eventually, if he's a normal and healthy male, he will probably form several friendships in the course of his life. And there may be some truly valued friendships among them. But your goal, and I would, if I were in your shoes, I would be praying along these lines on a daily basis. If you're already married, it's super important. If you're yet to be married, it's important to begin to get ahead of what the Lord is going to be accomplishing in your life when you do get married. And that is, the goal is, I want to be, because this is God's purpose, it's his calling, and it's his design for me and for the benefit of my husband. I want to be my husband's best friend, the friendship that he values most of all the friendships that he will ever experience in this world. Now, what forms a good friendship? You're not good friends with everybody, are you? No. Even the people that you know, there's people in this room that you know and you have at least some measure of friendship with. But you wouldn't say about everybody in this room, we're best friends. There's reasons for that. So what are the elements that contribute to best level friendship? Well, first, um, shared interests, shared values. If you're not interested in the same things I'm interested in, there's not much basis for us to be friends. I've used this example before. Uh, You you all know Sydney from Church Church. Sydney and I are friends, but we're primarily basketball friends. He's a big Laker fan. I'm a big Laker fan. And every time I see him, every time, every time, without fail, he'll have something to share with me about what's going on or what's failing to go on with the Lakers. And then I'll have stuff to share back with him. And so this has been going on for years now, and we've been through together as shared fans of the Lakers. We've been through the highest of heights when they've won the championship, and we've been through the lowest of lows when the the team stinks and is, is struggling. And We have things to talk about in both circumstances, whether the team is doing well or the team is doing poorly, because we're both interested in the same thing. Now, How deep would our friendship go if Sidney was a huge Laker fan and I could care less about the Lakers? Mm -hmm. And he comes up to me and every time he sees me, he's trying to start a conversation about the Lakers just because that's what he's most interested in. And I'm thinking to myself silently while he's talking, would you please stop talking? (laughs) Or would you please talk about something else? (laughs) I don't say that out loud to him because... I love him and I care about him and, you know, I don't want to hurt his feelings unnecessarily, but that's what's going on internally. He's Lakers, 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 and it's driving me crazy because I'm not (laughs) that interested in the Lakers. Now, I want to shift that to you and your husband, right? So you have things that you're super interested in, but what if he's not? What if he is? So you're ability to be a true companion and to form a true friendship with him has everything to do with you connecting with him based upon his interests and his values. Now, is it true that he should also take an interest in what you're interested in and value what you value? Yes, of course. But, you know, men are kind of dense. I I speak as a man. And so... It's interesting that the Lord in the Genesis account, Genesis 2, he doesn't say, you know, I'm going to make Adam a helper for her. It's not good that she should be alone. Why does he not say that? Because he knows she'll find a way to not be alone. She'll find someone or something to relate to. But he would just go on blissfully alone and suffer without realizing it. So it's really more on her shoulders to find out what his interests are and what his values are and to connect with him at that level. That's what it means to function as a true companion. So shared interests, things to talk about that you actually both enjoy talking about together. And then, this is helpful too, shared activities. Now, Adam and Eve had a shared activity right from the beginning. What was their shared activity? The garden. The Garden of Eden. And keeping that garden and guarding that garden and and making that garden, which was perfect, even better. And that was the Lord's dominion design for them. So those three things. Shared interests. Shared conversations of things that you're actually both engaged in talking about and then shared activities. Um, I don't know what kind of activities you might share with your husband, but it needs to be something he enjoys doing as opposed to, like let's say your favorite thing was to go shopping at the mall. And if he's anything like me, that would be my least favorite activity. And, And if you drag me along, I might go for your sake as my wife. But I wouldn't enjoy it. And I'd be kind of like dragging my heels after 15 minutes and like, you know, uh, let's go out to eat or let's, you know, let's go home. (laughs) Let's do anything other than this. But then there are other things, you know, that you can find that you actually enjoy doing together. Shared activities that are truly enjoyable. All right, another aspect besides friendship is uh, being a companion to your husband in work. Now, I mentioned Adam and Eve. Obviously, they shared the work of the garden. What I want to specifically focus on is, like, I'll use, I'll use the example of uh, Tim and Francis. So, you know, Tim worked for many years, just recently retired. But he worked as an executive at, at Bank of America. And Francis has her own career. She works as a nurse in the hospital. Um, could Francis go to Tim's office and share his work there? could she do that in any way no that's just not feasible it's not it's not workable in that sense but the more important element of sharing work assignments in a new covenant fulfillment perspective is this idea that you've heard me emphasize over and over and over again in various teachings and that is that each one of us has been given our own assignment from the lord so as a companion to be a functional and effective companion to your husband, there's nothing more important in terms of connecting to him on the work level of you understanding what your husband's assignment is in this world. Why has the Lord placed him in this world at this time in history? And what is it that he's supposed to accomplish? And it doesn't mean you can necessarily do his work with him. You might in certain circumstances. But it does mean by understanding his assignment, understanding the work that the Lord has given him to accomplish, you can support that. You can, you can recognize the value of his assignment. And then you come alongside and help that to happen. So like my work assignment is pretty obvious. You know, I'm a, I'm a shepherd, I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher of God's word. And that has its own unique responsibilities and its own unique work that's attached to that How would it be in my life if Sandy was constantly resisting the work that I'm doing and it's work that the Lord has given me to do? It's important work. It's it's very necessary work. But if she was constantly tugging the opposite direction, it would make my assignment doubly difficult. I had a, a... a pastor friend and a, a, really a, a, an amazing Bible teacher and high-level theologian years ago who, uh, who was married to a believer and um, she loved the Lord just like he loved the Lord. But uh, she one day walked in and announced to him, you know, I, this, my life has not turned out the way I imagined that it would. I never wanted to be married to a pastor. And here you are a pastor. And, um, I, I want out. I can't handle this anymore. And, you know, he, they went through a whole process where he did all that he could do to try to save the relationship, but she ended up divorcing him. And in her testimony, she said about him, he was great. And she had no criticism to share about him, but she said, I just can't live as a pastor's wife and so she walked out the door and abandoned him in that way through divorce. Now, uh, obviously, he was able to look back after it happened, and he saw many, many hints and clues with the benefit of, of clear hindsight where she was regularly resistant to the work and the assignment that the Lord had given him um, that he didn't recognize in the moment that it was actually happening. My point is that whatever the Lord has assigned to your husband, you have two options, and the option are you can pull the opposite direction or you can pull in his direction, and you can make his job in that sense easier and more joyful um, if you recognize the value of what the Lord has given him to accomplish and then the third area um, this i won 't read the passage, but for your notes, those are taking notes, this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And that is, you are a sexual companion to your husband. You are called into a special relationship with him in which the two of you will experience things in your physical intimacy that you will, he will not experience and you will not experience if you're both honoring God's patterns and God's ways in no other relationship of life than this one relationship and in that, there are two principles that the First Corinthians passage uh, emphasizes to you, and that is, one, there's a principle of mutual submission that's at work here. Now, this is exceptional. Generally speaking, uh, the, the uh, marriage relationship, biblically defined, the world doesn't like this, and even many segments of the Christian world today don't like this but the husband and wife relationship is not generally a relationship of mutual submission. That's all based on a misunderstanding of one key verse in Ephesians 5. I don't have time this morning to to, uh, talk about that in detail. But in this one area of your sexual relationship, it is a relationship of mutual submission in that uh, the passage clearly identifies that your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to him. Now that goes That flies right in the face of everything that the world is screaming at you nowadays. Your body does not belong to yourself. It belongs to him. But it also goes on to say his body does not belong to him. It belongs to you. And it's for this purpose of connecting to each other in this deep and intimate relationship. And the relationship that Genesis 2 describes as the the one flesh bond or basis for the covenant that the Lord has formed between the two of you. The second element, though, from that passage that's super important, and I, I would say this has always been important in every generation of human history, but it's never been more important than this generation, just because of the proliferation of sexual immorality in our current generation. And that is, in your companionship to your husband in this category, you are a guardian of his soul. You guard him from temptations that might, in his weakest moments, overwhelm him. And by pursuing a healthy element in this aspect of your relationship with him, you are guarding his heart, you're guarding his soul from those temptations in his weakest moments. Now, we're at the end of our time, so I didn't get to the second word. (laughs) The first word is, you're a companion to your husband. So we're just going to make this study about that concept. And Lord willing, if we have a breakfast again and you ask me back again, I'll finish this and we will talk in more detail. And really, it's a principle that deserves a whole study, so I'm not um, sad that we'll end up doing that. And we'll talk about what it means truly to be a helper to your husband. Again, they are overlap, companion and helper overlapping, but... The helper concept is its own it's its own thing, and it's super important to understand it, uh, not just in relationship to your husband and your own life, but in relationship to the larger pattern of what God is revealing through Christ and the church. So we'll put a, we'll put a comma there at the end of this study, and Lord willing, uh, in our next breakfast, we'll pick up with the next part of it. And um, I'll just say in May, women's, we'll, dis- we'll discuss these.